Um, they drill wells, they build churches all across the world. And um, they do that so that uh, they can then present the gospel. They show God's love through these projects, and then they share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many come to a saving knowledge of himself. Um, it's interesting how God is able to use people in various ministries to accomplish his will, accomplish his ways, accomplish his mission. But just as God uses people to fulfill and accomplish his mission, Satan as well uses people to accomplish his mission. And this morning in Revelation chapter 13, uh, we have an example of that as we're going to be introduced to two men who John, the apostle, calls beasts. We're going to be introduced to these two men who Satan will use greatly in his mission on earth. Now, we have come to a place in the book of Revelation that we call the tribulation period. Uh, we looked last week at the beginning of that period. We have come now midway and we're introduced to these two men or beasts. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. This, by the way, is the next to the last sermon in this series. Uh, next week, we're going to jump all the way to chapter 19. And that, of course, is when Jesus comes himself riding on that white horse uh, during that battle of Armageddon uh, when he comes to earth. But this morning, we're in Revelation chapter 13, and we look and see, first of all, the beast that comes out of the sea. There is a beast that comes up out of the sea. Now, before I read this, back in chapter 12, we didn't deal with that chapter, but in chapter 12, there was a great war that took place in heaven. It was a war between Michael the archangel and Satan himself. And Michael wins. And Satan is cast out of heaven. He's angry. And now we open chapter 13 with the dragon who is Satan. And according to chapter 12, he's standing on the shore of the sea. Chapter 13, verse 1. This dragon, Satan himself, he stood on the shore of the sea of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea it had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name the beast I saw it resembled a leopard but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast and who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God 
and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Now this beast that has come out of the sea, I believe to be the Antichrist. Uh, some may believe differently, but I believe it to be the Antichrist. There is a passage of scripture back in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, we have Daniel's great vision of four beasts. Remember we said before that it's often important to compare scripture with scripture. Especially when you come to a book like the book of Revelation. Where it has such symbolic language and we need to understand how to interpret all of that. Well back in Daniel's book in chapter 7 he has this vision of four great beasts. Four great beasts. And in chapter 7 and verse 14 it says this. That the four beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. Now let me show you a chart up here on the screen. Uh, what we find back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees four beasts. He sees a lion, he sees a bear, and he sees a leopard, which are the three beasts that Daniel mentions in chapter 13. Back in Daniel chapter 2, uh, we find another vision of Daniel, and in this vision he sees this image, this statue, with a man with a head of gold. Uh, he has a silver breastplate, the bronze skirt, skirt, and then the legs and the toes. And if you notice the kingdoms that each of these represent, uh, the last one is Rome, the next to the last is Greece, and then we have at the top the media Persian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire. Remember in Daniel 7.14 it said that each of these great beasts, these four, represent kingdoms. They represent kingdoms. And here in chapter 2 uh, we have an image that represents the kingdoms as well. Now, having said all of that, when we come to chapter 13 of Revelation, it does mention the leopard, the bear, and the lion. And these all seem to be characteristics of the final world kingdom during the tribulation period. We believe that this Roman Empire is going to be revived during that time. It's going to be revived during that time. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, he was able to see a lion, a bear, and a, and, a, and a leopard that describes the first three kingdoms Daniel was not able to describe this last beast. He said it was terrifying and frightening. But there was no creature in God's creation that resembled what he saw. And so, when we come to Revelation 13 now, and we read of this beast, 
this beast that now comes up out of the sea, uh, we see, according to Daniel's visions, we see we're talking about a kingdom. A kingdom. But also, if we were to go back into chapter 2, Daniel looked at Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonians, and said, you are that head. In other words, there, it's hard to separate the king from his kingdom. So when we read of this beast that's coming up out of the sea, I believe it to be the Antichrist, the great beast. But I also believe that he represents a kingdom. And oftentimes when we read through these passages, the passages refer to one or sometimes the other. For example, even though it does say that these beasts, they represent kingdoms, we find that this beast speaks, referring to an individual. So yes, I believe it is the Antichrist, but I also believe that it's this one world kingdom, this one world empire, this one world government in which he is going to come and establish on the world. The beast symbolizes both. Notice also in this passage where he gets his power. We read in verse 2 that the beast received his power from the dragon. That it was Satan himself who, gave to, who will give to Antichrist his power in order to do all that he needs to do. Satan is a spirit. He needs to indwell and I believe he's going to indwell this man called Antichrist. Beast literally means a monster, a vicious killing animal, which is why I believe Daniel is unable to describe the fourth beast as something that he's ever seen in God's creation. He speaks of it as being terrifying and frightening. During the first three and a half years of the tribulation, this Antichrist will be a charming man. Uh, he's going to be a man of great charisma, probably an intellectual genius, have great oratory abilities to be able to capture audiences as he speaks, immense leadership power and strength. It's not until midway through the tribulation period where his true colors shine through the person that he really is the evil deceitful liar will not be exposed until halfway through this period one of his purposes is to create a one world government we believe it to be the revived roman empire I want to read something to you that I think will help us to understand how this could happen. How one man could rule the entire world. The reason given for the need of a one world government will be that problems like global terrorism and international conflict cannot be controlled by the United States alone or any other nation 
we cannot continue to be international police. The growing problems of our global community will require a united government to handle all of these problems. The United Nations and its forces have been largely ineffective because of their limited jurisdiction. And the problems the world faces will call for increased authority and military power. The person who heads this organization will ultimately grow in power through personal charm and increasing use of force. He will disguise his true motives in the beginning and greatly appeal to the masses. We know that this Antichrist, when he comes on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation period, he will establish a covenant with Israel, a peace covenant. And Israel will gladly accept this covenant, a peace treaty for Israel, a one world government that can promise Israel safety and peace within their borders. They will gladly accept this covenant, this treaty. But as I said, halfway through the tribulation period, he shows his true colors. This, tre tr this peace treaty is short-lived and it is broken midway through that period. It says in verse 3, he has a fatal wound. Um, as, as a matter of fact, it says uh, that one of his he the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. Um, I don't believe this was an actual fatal wound. I believe Satan being the great deceiver, Satan being the great liar, um, he fakes a death and a resurrection. Satan is the great counterfeiter. And so he causes Antichrist to be somewhat like Christ in that he died and rose again. We know that Jesus, of course, did that. That Jesus died on a cross. Three days later, he came back to life. Something like that is taking place, except it's counterfeit. It's fake. I don't believe there to be a real death and resurrection. But it is so deceitful. It will be done in such a way as to shock the world. The world will be astonished at this one who comes back to life. Imagine JFK when he was shot and claimed to be dead. Imagine him for some reason you know, coming back to life again. The shock of the world. Satan is going to plan this fatal wound in such a way that the world, it says, will be filled with wonder and they will begin to follow the beast. They will begin to follow this beast who will then claim to be God himself. I want you to turn, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, we looked at this verse, I believe, uh, last week, um, but I'd like to read it again because there it speaks of the lie. The lie. And I believe this fatal wound is that lie. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. It says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And by the way, in the Greek, there is a definite article 
This is not a lie that Satan tells, but the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Satan will create this death and resurrection in a way that people will actually believe that the Antichrist has died and has come back to life. And they will now attribute deity to him. And he will be worshipped and followed as God. What does he do? Well, as I said, he made a peace treaty in the beginning, but now his true colors come through. Now he shows his true motives. And what he does, according to Revelation 13, is he launches a gigantic anti-Christian crusade. A gigantic anti-Semitic crusade. Killing Christians and killing Jews alike. But we find at the end of the text that I just read that although he can kill the body, he cannot kill the spirit. We're going to come back to that when we conclude this morning. We're going to come back to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 13. There's another beast. It's the beast that comes out of the earth. Look at verse 11. Let me read down through the end of this chapter. Then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns, like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed and it performed great signs even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of all the people because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast it deceived the inhabitants of the earth it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all the people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. This beast that comes up out of the earth, I believe to be the false prophet. It's not mentioned here, Uh, He's not named here as that false prophet. But three other times in the book of Revelation, we read about the false prophet. For example, if you turn to chapter 16, 
and look with me at verse 13, we see that this was the false prophet. It says, Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came up out of the mouth of the dragon. Who is that? Satan. Out of the mouth of the beast. Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet. I said last week that Satan counterfeited the divine trinity. That Satan has an antichrist and a false prophet. An unholy, an evil trinity. I believe that the second beast in chapter 13 is the false prophet. Who is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. What was one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit? One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Christ. Jesus said when he was about to ascend back into heaven, he said to his disciples that when I leave, the Comforter will come and he will guide you into all truth and he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. What does the false prophet do? He glorifies the Antichrist. He does not draw attention to himself, but all of the attention he points toward Antichrist. It's the Antichrist who is to be worshipped. This is a false prophet. It's interesting as well. Uh, he too will deceive the world. It says that he comes on the scene and his appearance is that of a lamb. Now a lamb is very meek. A lamb is very mild. But it says he spoke like a dragon. So again, the deceitfulness of his appearance when he comes on the scene. Gentle and mild, but has the same satanic power as the Antichrist. You know, Jesus warned of wolves who would come in sheep's clothing. This is the false prophet. Appears to be a lamb on the outside, but inside, satanically possessed. What is his purpose? The purpose of the Antichrist is a one-world government. The purpose of the false prophet is a one-world religion. All attention, all worship is to be directed toward the Antichrist. Everyone in the world is to worship this man. What is his method? His method is deception. His method is deception. It begins with his appearance as a lamb. It moves to uh, this fake resurrection. As we read twice in this section, uh, he speaks of that, John does. Uh, he also, it says, will bring down fire from heaven. That certainly would cause Great astonishment and amazement. Uh, my wife and I were planning to go to Williamsburg again in December. Now I know you're saying again. You're always going to Williamsburg. But we've never been there in December. You say, so what? Uh, well, for us it's a big deal. We, we love Williamsburg. We want to see the Christmas decorations and smell the wood burning in the fireplaces. But there's what they call a grand illumination. On, on December the 6th, uh, that's when we're leaving, it's on a Sunday, you're all going to be here, but we're going to be driving south, and then uh, this grand illumination 
It actually is, uh, it represents what they did in the old days during the, uh, at the, in the revolutionary city where when a governor would arrive or they came back from a great victory, uh, they would shoot off the cannons and shoot off the guns. Well, this grand illumination is there on the palace green. And you stand and they fire the guns and they have a great firework display and all of those things. Just pray that it's not too cold. <laughs> Just pray that Brian didn't bring any of that cold weather down uh, to uh, Virginia. Um, but we're anxious to go. But who doesn't love a firework display? You know, I, I'm not a big firework guy, but, you know, on 4th of July, you hear the cracks, and, you, and so I go outside, and usually you can see off in the distance, you know, some of the things that are taking place. The false prophet, the Bible says, is going to bring fire down out of heaven. Can you imagine the people that stand in full view of this spectacular display? Again, deception, but nevertheless. And then notice also the talking statue. According to verses 14 and 15, there's going to be an image that is going to be set up in honor of. It doesn't necessarily say that this is going to look like the Antichrist. It may, it may not. But it's an image that's going to be set up in honor of him. And the second beast, verse 15, the false prophet was able to give power, was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. Now, I don't claim to know what's going on here. I just know what I've just read. I know that some statue, some image is going to be set up where the false prophet who has been given power by Satan himself is going to give breath to this statue where the statue now is able to speak. The statue who has the appearance of life is going to cause people to worship it and the Antichrist. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, he referred to this when he spoke of the abomination which causes desolation. This statue that's going to be set up there in the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of worship during this time. And there in the temple, there will be this statue that will be erected. This detestable thing. And by some mysterious means, will force people to receive the mark of the beast. We spoke about sealing when we looked at the 144,000 Jews where they will be sealed on their foreheads. This mark of the beast will be placed on the foreheads or on the right hand. Again, I don't claim to know exactly what all is taking place here. I know some have 
mathematically try to compute using these numbers who this Antichrist is going to be. My simple explanation, because I'm a simple guy, is this. God's number is seven. We know that God has created the earth in seven days. The number seven is a number of perfection. It's a number of completeness. It's God's number. Man's number is six. Maybe the fact that there are three sixes, it suggests man's attempt to be like God and can never get there. But it seems like something like that is taking place. Without this mark, you cannot buy or sell. During the tribulation period, unless you receive this mark, either on your forehead or your right hand, you cannot buy or sell. Now imagine, you need groceries for your family, and you decide to go into Giant. And there at the front door, there's a guard, and this guard looks at you, and you do not have the mark on your forehead. He says to you, show me your right hand. You do not have the mark of the beast, and you're turned away. You need gas. You stop at sheets. Before you get to the pump, there's a guard. The guard looks at you. You don't have the mark on your forehead. He says, show me your hand. You show him your hand. There's no mark. He turns you away. The law of the Antichrist during this time is you worship me or you starve and die. This is not a good time for Christians. This is a severe test for those who have, who have accepted Christ. The law of the Antichrist during this time is you either worship me or you will starve and you will die. Turn back to verses 9 and 10. I said I wanted to go back to these two verses to conclude this morning. Let me read these verses once again. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. And if anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword, uh, they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Many will be martyred. Many will be slain. Many during this day will starve to death. But I believe what these verses are saying is this, though the body may die, the spirit cannot die. Earlier, before verse 9, it speaks of those names that had been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life, which is a record of all of those who have trusted Jesus as their personal Savior. All of those who have come to Christ and asked that He save them by His blood. All of those who have had their sins forgiven are written in this book. This heavenly, royal, 
registry. And what is being said here is, yes, you may be killed. You may be martyred. It's possible that you may be slain and persecuted. But they can never take away your life spiritually. That once your name is written in this book, and we believe in our church in eternal security, that once you become a child of God's, once you're in his family, you cannot be removed from that relationship. You have security knowing that you are part of the family of God and no power in hell or on earth can erase your name from this book. No one can rob you of that eternal life. Victory is spiritual. It's not physical. And several commentaries that I read relating to this book, they, uh, the, this text spoke about God being sovereign. That those during this day need to understand that God does sit on the throne. That God remains in control. And therefore, knowing who God is and who you are and your relationship with Him, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. You know, someone had asked one time, what what in a nutshell is this book all about? I mean, it's so hard to interpret. It's so hard to understand all of the symbolism. But can't you just break it down? What does the book of Revelation say? What is the bottom line? And someone had said this, that we win in the end. That we will win. In the end. Thank God that we're on his side. Thank God that we're children of his. I spoke before about don't be left behind. Yes, I believe there will be a great revival during this time. But please, don't be left behind. You know what I just described. What kind of life it will be for someone to come to Christ during this tribulation period. Don't be left behind. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you, you need to trust Christ to come into your life and save you from your sins. Because the Bible says that we who are Christians, we will not go through this terrible time of tribulation. The Bible says we'll hear the trump of God and we will be caught up to be with Him in the air. I strongly encourage you to come to Jesus today. I am going to be at the door. If you have questions about your salvation or uh, whether or not you know the Lord, uh, please say something to me. I'd be glad to sit down and talk with you this week or this afternoon. But today is that day of salvation. Don't wait until tomorrow. We don't know when the Lord is coming back. It may be today. But for you who know the Lord, we don't have to worry about these things. But what this does for us, it should motivate us to share the gospel with those who 
do not know because we don't want others to be left behind. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. And Father, it's passages like these that maybe we will never experience. But these are passages that stir our hearts, that cause us to want to be that salt and light of the world. And so I pray, Lord, for that one who may not know you, that, Father, you would stir that heart, bring them to a saving knowledge of yourself, and for us who, Father, know that we're part of your family, stir our hearts in the sense that, Lord, we need to be busy in getting the gospel into all the world. And so, Father, I thank you for passages such as these that speak Continue to speak this week, I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you have your hymn book, would you take it and please turn with me to hymn number 460, 460, who is on the Lord's side, who will serve the King? Let's stand together and we're going to sing stanza one and stanza four, just two stanzas, one and four. side who will serve the king who will <laughs> other lives to bring who will leave the world side will face the foe who is on the Lord's side who for him will go by thy call of mercy by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side, Savior, we are thine. Fierce may be the conflict, <coughs> but the King's own army <coughs> is standard raging, victory is secure. the triumph sure. Joyfully enlisting by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Father, we're thankful this morning for the salvation which is ours through your Son. And I ask again, Lord, that you would give that soul no rest until they come to the conviction that they need Jesus as Savior. And for us, Lord, we are on your side. But Father, we have much to do. Uh, we are your soldiers and ambassadors, and we go out into the world. And I pray, Lord, that we might not be ashamed of the gospel, but give us the great boldness of Peter and Paul, be able to share our faith, share our stories, Lord, with those around us. You are a great and sovereign God, Lord, and we're thankful that you are in complete control, that you do sit on a throne, that you do rule and reign and will forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
is cool. 